0: The problem with ha- wearing your mask in your home means that you keep your mask in your home, yeah. which means that you get dog hair in it. Dog hair in my mask.
1: <laughs> Welcome to this episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Kane. With me I would say usually this is the part where I say with me as always. But really we haven't actually been with each other until we figured out our social distance recording situation that yep. we have set up today, which is great. Uh, with me today, though most of through most goddamn time is flying. Wow, this year sucks. With me today, and hopefully in the future, as always, is Laura Zatz. At long last, say hello, Laura.
0: Hello, Laura.
1: Um, So today's going to be fun. We're going to talk about a bunch of different stuff. Um, Obviously, it's been a little while since we have checked in on our main show. We've been doing Patreon stuff, and mostly we've been teaching, um, which is something we can maybe chat about today for a minute. But, like... It's been a minute, you know, yeah. and it just feels really good to be back. Um, I thank everyone who's listening to this one for sticking with us. Um, obviously, this is a year that has thrown all of us into chaos, into various ways. Most people, you know, more than others. Certainly most people more than us, you know, like we, you know, we've got a pretty good, but... Um, it has. This has been a disruptive year. We're back to it, though. We're feeling good. I feel incredibly refreshed sitting here with my friend Laura in the basement
0: um, next to the storage area.
1: Yeah, just like with a giant chasm between. It's very strange. Um,
0: I've got a card. Okay, so let let's like explain to the people <laughs> what we have going on because I I find it very amusing. Uh-huh. Um, so we're in my basement uh-huh. because it's the largest and quietest space yeah. in my house. Um, corners, I have I have to a be card- clear folks. <laughs> I have a card table I'm pushed up in between the stairs, a shelf that I keep cat food and various dry goods in and near the bathroom. <laughs> Eric is shoved up in a corner near a bookshelf which doesn't really have books on it currently. Um and storage area and he does not the card table is not big enough for social distancing so he has his computer propped up on an ironing board. I had I tried a system earlier where it was like a funeral home folding chair plus a cooler Mm -hmm. but it wasn't working so we went with the ironing board.
1: This to me actually feels more true to the podcasting genre. (laughs) Like When you think of people doing podcasts I feel like the joke online is that it's always like you know, people sitting on a couch and, like, they don't have – there's no, like, formal structure. There's, everything sounds like they're recording from a closet, all that kind of stuff. And, like, hopefully we sound a little better than that. But it feel, I feel true to the form's roots sitting over here with my computer on an ironing board, um, which is nice. Yeah. And I, I'm ready to talk about various things, like IP, like uh, we're going to have a little conversation, folks, about gender um, because – boy has there that been some conversation about that on um, these last couple of weeks in publishing um but before we get to any of that how about the basic i guess it's not really basic anymore like we we're out of practice we're gonna get back into rhythm folks i'm like feeling a rush of we, we had macaroni
0: and cheese pizza and chocolate <laughs> cookies before we recorded today
1: it just feels like putting on a nice cardigan being back behind this microphone
0: carb again a
1: carb again carb again. okay
0: um sorry that's we're gonna our, brush that's we're our gonna... furnace <laughs> that is
1: <laughs> okay that
0: you might be able to hear in the background um okay anyway basic rundown um we missed our special episodes last month partially on purpose partially not if i'm being totally honest yeah um and so we're doing another round of doubles for the yep. end of this month so we're doing um, we'll be caught up this month Yeah. So we're doing six query critiques, six first pages critiques, and then um, we've had a bunch of people write in and request specific things for the Flexisode. So we're going to do a couple of things there. Um, It should be really fun if you're not a Patreon um, member. Think about joining. A lot of people have said it's super useful. Um, A bunch of people have written in in the last couple of years that we've done this and said, you know, the advice or the things that We've learned from your show. Help me get an agent, or help me get published. Which feels really good I do to like help people that, get yeah. published without me actually having to be the one to sell the book. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the to
1: do as little as possible. And yeah. that fits that category. Yeah. So yeah. check
0: it out. Um, <laughs> and I think that's enough. Why don't we just? Why don't we just like well, roll so right I wanna, in? I
1: want to tee you up for this first thing we're going to talk about, which is um, IP. Um, which, I guess, I was going to go ahead and define it, but I think I kind of want you to. The way I understand it, and you tell me if I'm wrong here, is just like properties, you know, that exist that a publisher already has the rights to, you know, some creative universe, whatever it is, and they find writers to write within it. Now, this has raised some—I won't call it controversy, but it raised some discussion the other day.
0: Some opinions. Some opinions. <laughs> They were opinions.
1: (laughs) Some tweets. Let's just call them what they were. Um, People were talk. they were griping about there being too many IP books on the bestseller list. Um, Because, and the thinking, the reason that was frustrating to this person is that, you know, an IP book isn't a quote unquote real book, right? Like an IP book is something that... Is written within a pre-existing set of characters or a universe or whatever it is like you aren't doing the thing entirely from scratch yourself and so in this person's opinion it's not really a you know an original novel and you shouldn't it shouldn't have a place on the bestseller list basically um and i know you especially if you guys don't know laura like obviously you know her as a podcast host but if you don't know her as an agent laura is for my money if i were trying to find somebody to do ip stuff I'd go to Laura's ads. Hey. Um she she's very good at it. She sells a lot of it. Um, and I, I'm interested, Laura, in hearing you talk a little bit about how you see IP. Not only is it a real book or not, because I know what you're going to say about that, but in terms of author careers and how, like, working with it, being commissioned as part of an IP series mm-hmm. relates to um i don't know author's original work other career goals things like that
0: yeah ooh good question um so for those of you who are confused and you're like wow this sounds like a work for hire situation why is it called ip well it is a work for hire situation ip stands for intellectual property which every book is an I- or every like piece of art is intellectual property so everything should be called ip it's not it's only work for hire um, the kind of IP that Eric was primarily talking about the stuff is the stuff that's like very visibly IP.
1: Yeah.
0: This is these are the Star Wars books. These are the video game tie-ins. These are the um, like novelization versions of other properties, movies, TV shows, etc. Um, then there's the other kind of IP which you don't really see and you don't really know about which are, you know, just editors at an imprint coming up with ideas and mm-hmm. then finding people to write right. them. Right. Um, and the big difference there is that there's lots of collaboration. And of course, like the publisher holds the copyright. And, um, you know, money, money is complicated and can vary based on what the right. project is. But um, like the big aha, like, IP is actually everywhere around you is when I tell everyone that Razor Bill, which is a YA imprint through Penguin, Penguin Random House, um, 50% of their titles are IP. Right. They do a ton of development right. in-house. A and lot no one of, yeah. is
1: casting aspersions on Razor Bill's, like, validity or prestige or anything, you know, like, this is a... Yeah,
0: because nobody yeah, knows. Right. Yeah, like, <laughs> um, Scholastic does a ton of yes, IP. Yes, of course, right. Um, you know, so, like, and obviously a lot of like graphic novels and things mm-hmm. like that are also tie-ins. So um, the, so one of the things I think people don't necessarily understand from the outside is that it's not just like finding a writer to write what somebody else tells you. Like it's very collaborative, it's kind of, um, I think of it more of like a writer's room kind of situation than a, you know, somebody hiring somebody to write exactly what they want. Like a lot of the times, um, even with big properties, there is a ton of room for innovation and people laying their own marks. Like I'm working on an IP project right now that unfortunately I can't tell you what it is, but there's like real questions about like a decision that my author is going to make might have on an entire huge series. right? And so it becomes a question of, of like, can I make this decision? And most of the time the answer is like, yeah. And it it feels really big. Like, it's can you imagine you. Yeah. making a huge decision right. about a backstory of a favorite character, right. you know, or something right. like that? Um, but I think, like, most importantly, um, what I wanted to talk about in IP is not just like, what is it, right? Which is kind of what we've done so far. But I, I think it's really worth Examining IP as a phenomenon that's growing more and more common, yep. wouldn't you agree? Because yes. you know, that's kind of the, the benefit of living in a um, kind of media conglomerate based world. There's lots is, of
1: existing properties, there's tons yeah. of
0: existing properties, and yep. big, like big right. corporations want right. to keep producing stuff in those properties. Right. And more importantly, what they want to do is they want to, they want to, um, they want to find more readers and more ways of keeping people attached to those properties, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, that's that's this is actually like I think IP and the prevalence of it, the growing prevalence of it, is is an, an incredible thing that has come out of you know whether <laughs> you like it or not the that that globalization of of media mm-hmm. of of having everything be part of one parent company everything owned by the same people right um it's actually something that's really been great for individual creators and i want to get into why right um so with an ip project you're not really like as a as a, as a creator, you're not really trying to, like, sell anybody on anything. You're not convincing them of something that somebody is, like, taking a chance on. Right? Like, if you have an existing property. Mm-hmm. There's there's buy-in in house already. Yes. Right. Like there's there's a decision from in house that something is worth the investment.
1: There's also buy-in outside the house.
0: There's buy-in outside because the house because you as have well. an
1: existing audience. Exactly. And so yeah.
0: this this is kind. And so what this allows to happen is not only you know from from a writer's perspective, like the collaboration I I have found has been really really fulfilling for a lot of my writers to be able to work really closely with editors and kind of like work with them in that way rather than being totally alone writing the book and then selling it to them. Mm -hmm. Um, But beyond that, what it does is it allows writers who might not have the clout to attach themselves to their own IP and get like huge big deals and huge financial investments from publishers. And what it does is it gives them a property that raises their profile like crazy. Before
1: they could maybe do that for themselves.
0: Before they could do that from themselves. And that's, and like what I've been seeing a lot is a lot of editors looking for IP now are looking for um, writers from marginalized backgrounds yeah. because the idea is to expand the fan base of a particular property to um, to other groups that might not necessarily feel super welcome in the original property. And so you're seeing opportunities, like big name Star Wars level opportunities going to authors that are fairly new, authors that are of color.
1: Because you don't need to. And I think the reason for that is because you aren't selling like in trade publishing, the basic logic is that the most important selling tool you have is the author,
0: Mm -hmm. right? Like
1: you are selling apart from the novel itself, like if it's an anonymous person or if it's You know, a novel no one's ever read before. Like, the way to sell the book is to get the author in front of people, to use their context, to use who they are, and do all that. But this is the rare case where that isn't true, right? Where, like, the brand that you're feeding into can be more of a selling – or is much more of a selling point than the author who writes it. And that can be really helpful, obviously, to authors. And I think, like, you know, you and I – this show, in general, is – it exists, I think, because publishing has a lot of bad ideas – (laughs) <laughs> Does that feel fair to say like uh, yeah, would we have that this show if publishing was doing a good job all the time? I don't think we would. But this in particular, I think, is is one of publishing's actually very good ideas. Like and it's that because so much you know, we talk all the time about how boom and bust trade publishing is, about how a title is either super A list or it's barely Forgotten. marketed at all. This like and we and we talk so frequently about wanting something steadier, about wanting publishers to be able to Accept you know, the mid-list
0: as something the mid-list, that's good.
1: Build their own brand. You know what I mean? Like it would. I think we would live in a very different world if people, or if more people, not just like you and I, were buying books based on who the publisher was, as opposed. Which I know some people do, but those people are really plugged in, as opposed to just like the general reader who's looking for a good book. They probably don't care who the publisher is. This is one of those scenarios where you can br- a publisher can brand multiple projects across one cohesive thing people recognize, and you can use that larger universe, that larger piece of intellectual property to put people on. You yeah. know what I mean? Like it's,
0: This is the it, opposite of the boom and bust trade yeah, model. No, it is. This it's, is steady work, steady investment.
1: This is the infrastructure. You know what it's going to sell. You know what it's going to do. You know it allows you to pay an author often a little bit more because you're not feeling quite as risk-averse. I mean, it's this is basically one of the very few systems in trade publishing that really works like as a just a true system apart from any individual heroics any individual branding like sometimes you know you have an ip project where like the author is a big name or something and people are really excited about it and it maybe sells a little bit more but like by and large this is what i think we would want is like writers being able a publisher being able to say to a writer that maybe they want to help build and say look let's have you do this first here's a chance for some money here's a chance for you to get your words and then you can use this credit to do other things you can use that money to buy yourself a little time to write Like it, this is publishers I think doing their part and this is smart and especially like you said like we live in a world like it or not that is very you know I mean we live with corporate publishers and they're consolidating and they're doing these things and like that presents any number of terrible things that we spent, have spent years talking about but the one good thing it will do is it offers chances to do this, where these places can build kind of cohesive brands that then we can feed authors into to help them start their careers. And so, I like I don't do any IP yet on my list. Like my kind
0: of, I mean, but you, it's you like do a lot of commissioning, but <laughs> yeah. not like
1: I guess yeah, no, the, it's, it's not
0: in the same financial. Well, <laughs> same the problem way. is
1: that I don't have the ability to like. So what like I I do commission most of my books. Like it's. Um, I ask writers to write things, or I find writer like it's. That's how I find most of my clients. But the problem is that I don't have any money to pay anyone. My job you're is you're not buying their copyright. Right, right. From I'm not them. buying. I'm not buying anything from anyone. I'm saying, hey, let's come together and make this thing, and I bet we can sell it to somebody else. You know, and so I don't know. I mean, I'm into IP stuff, yeah. even if it's not necessarily my bag. I mean, I like steadiness. I, think I like. It's yeah.
0: So funny that. It it took gigantic like multimedia international conglomerations to cr- to recreate steadiness yeah. in in like book publishing well, like you know, that that is so like I love that it happens yeah I love that it happened but it's ridiculous that we needed to be like hey movie studio yeah give us give us some like steadiness in our <laughs> in our list
1: you know what though like. I, so I worked for a while at Oxford University Press, and this conversation makes me think a lot about what their trade publishing wing relies on, and they're, obviously they do stuff that isn't trade publishing, um, and that feels a little bit separate from this, but one thing that Oxford University Press does, which, if we're talking about, like, risk-averse old guard publishers, this is the one, you know what I mean, like, there isn't, like, this is as old school as it gets, right, and... One thing that they do really well, though, and one thing that they've come to rely on is, I don't know if you would call this the same thing, but something very similar, which is, like, the series, right? And you have these series that they do. For instance, like, um, I don't know, I think a lot about, like, the Very Short Introductions. You ever seen those little books? Yeah. Um, those are Oxford University Press books. They sell, like, hotcakes. But more importantly, they sell a very specific amount That is that they know how much, what it's going to do. They know who they can sell it to, courses, students, various interest group you know whatever the topic is Mm -hmm. and what ended up happening a lot between that series or like the oxford handbook series or like the uh you know they have this series called what everyone needs to know you know these sort of trade books about a given topic that you can produce very quickly um the author right on the front end author was not important the the thing was that people came to it because it was the rare situation where people saw people trusted the publisher and the series, and so in, internally, what that meant is that if an editor had an author on their list that they were trying to find a bridge project for, if they were trying to, they couldn't, you know, they were trying to make it in some way, and they didn't have another idea. Well, let's just plug them into the series. Let's have them write the very short introduction on whatever topic they're an expert in, mm-hmm. you know. And it Which was,
0: is great from a contract standpoint because it also yes, like opens yes. them up to another contract right. and another option clause. Right,
1: and it's great from an author perspective because well, it's really it's great for everyone because it's steadiness. The author can rely. You know, one, it's probably not as much work. It's not like you have to come up with the whole thing. Whole like you, you're given sort of a um, here's the parameters of what you're trying to do, and you just do it and it pays a certain amount and it keeps you afloat for a while while you think of your next big important whatever original book that you're planning but and that series you know each season if you're able to publish enough of them you can you know you can hit your margins you can hit your you know sales quotas you can do these things and it just keeps everything running like to me so in so often like the series and the IP stuff like this is the glue You know, this is how publishers work.
0: It's how nonfiction children's publishers work as well. Yes. They say, hey, the core education standards look like this. There's a hole in the market for this. Let's find an author or write in-house a book that looks like this.
1: Smart publishing is not as romantic as you think it is. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, remember when we went to, this is an observation we made after we went to the London Book Fair, too, which is that, what we understand to be the publishing that we're interested in mm-hmm. is such a small part of what publishing is and how it makes money. And obviously, IP is, if not directly related to that, very close. Um, but it's I feel to me, I think of it in that way where it's like the thing that keeps publishing afloat is not the breakout literary novel. you know that's fun. that's nice. That's a nice little brand builder for everyone that's not what we're doing here you know like we need this stuff and like if the option for keeping things afloat is like a good series you know a good ongoing ip series that has a fan base and stuff or like the next billionaire vanity book that they buy forty thousand copies to distribute at the rnc for (laughs) i pick option one you know what i mean like i would much rather that be what we're doing and so i don't know this
0: conversation also reminds me a lot of when we did the like if we built our yeah, own publishing right. house, what would it look like? And the answer to yours was I want half of the things that I publish to be like, tri- like, you know, UK fiction or translated fiction that I bought the rights to. Right. And I don't have to do anything with them. I just repackage them and publish yes. them. Yes. And that'll give me, you know, steady enough sales to take chances on other yes. projects.
1: Right. Rights buys, all that yeah. kind of stuff like that is smart publishing. That's how you compete.
0: Yeah. I feel In. like a lot of publishing is just really like bad gambling. Yeah. No, <laughs> or like is. unwilling to bet when people should bet or like pretending that they're not at the poker table when they actually That's are. That's the
1: funniest part about it, right? It's like, it, it's, it's bad enough to say it's gambling. Like if I said that like oh, publishing is a gamble. We would all kind of cringe. Say that's bad. But worse, they're bad gamblers. You know what I mean? <laughs> like if you're well, gonna if you're gonna one sit thing at to the card table, it's know one how thing to play. To,
0: yeah. it's another to like pretend you're not gambling right. but you actually oh, yeah, are. Absolutely. And like that's that's absolutely. what a sales business is, right? Absolutely. Like creating products, like it's always a gamble.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, but <laughs> but it's just like pretending that they're not that the the whole IP thing and kind of what it's doing. Or writers is is one kind of positive side of the current um, conglomerate cable newsification kind of yeah. like version of publishing that we're seeing right now. Yes, I think you and I have been kind of either very aware or tangentially aware, depending on what instance. But there's been a a big grouping of instances related to publishing recently mm-hmm. that, frankly, when taken by themselves, all just sound like people making bad decisions. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and I kind of want to, like, run through them really quickly and sure. then we can talk about it. Um, So first of all, not a surprise to hopefully anybody, but J.K. Rowling is a trans-exclusionary <laughs> radical feminist. Um, We've talked
1: about her before, yes. Yeah,
0: Just, just like... Trigger warning for people: We're going to be talking about um, transmisogyny. We're going to be talking about transphobia. So if you don't want to hear about that, then I would recommend you skip the good chunk of this next this episode. Um, But J.K. Rowling, one of the most successful living authors, or the most successful living author currently in the world, Um, big big asshole.
1: Yeah, so she's just someone who has really kind of staked her claim on this sort of trans misogyny line about, you know, women are women, you know, like that kind of rhetoric, you know, that sort of kind of erases trans people and worse to trans people, you know, incites violence, does things like, you know, makes them less safe, all these different things.
0: Yeah, Um, real bad. So
1: we've got her and I think like the reason we're making this list of things to come after is because I do think there are some through lines, right? Like... We've got this. I mean, obviously, anyone who follows book Twitter, um, they probably saw uh, that an agent at Tobias Literary Agency, Sasha White, was fired for having a, an alt account on Twitter that was pretty fragrantly flagrantly. Uh, also tra- fragrantly. <laughs> transmisogynist. Um, we've got the, which, which we'll get into in a minute, um, there is the Reclaim Her Name campaign. Which, Lord, you see this
0: frankly, I <laughs> love the name of like the reclaim, reclaim her, her name, name, name campaign. campaign. It's very,
1: it's got a nice ring to it. It
0: sounds yeah. like I love, I love a near rhyme, right? Yeah. Um, no, this this is this is something out of um, the UK. The Women's Prize for Fiction, which I think was formerly known as um, the Orange Orange Prize, uh-huh. um, and also Bailey's, you know, like the Irish <laughs> cream maker. Uh, worked together to celebrate like the 25th year anniversary of the Women's Prize for Fiction. Um, And so they created this campaign um, and this, so it's billed as quote, finally giving female writers the credit they deserve, end quote. So what they're doing is they're republishing 25 classic and like key theirs. a lot of them are lesser known works by authors who used like pseudonyms uh-huh. that are being cited as like historically male um so that includes people like um George Elliot um it includes uh people like um Vernon Lee, George Sand like these these <laughs> these are names um and so there's been pushback and we can talk in a minute really specifically about, Like, why this is a bad idea? Um, But I also want to point out that um, this campaign also published The Life and Public Services of Martin R. Delaney, which is an autobiographical book uh, published with Frederick Douglass on the cover. Um,
1: (laughs) So this is where we get to the tell.
0: This is where we get to the tell. Like,
1: when they're putting the wrong dude on the cover, like, this is where we can kind of start to see... Um, that maybe this was not as thought through as perhaps they their noble intentions. Or not so noble, who knows, but like whatever like there were some flaws out the get go here.
0: Yeah. Um and I th- I think like the main thing and you can find reasons for why this is problematic looking at the individual artists that they're quote reclaiming the names of. Yeah. Um, but what it does is it entirely strips these authors who are dead. Like their works are in the public domain. Um, of of their agency. Like you have Vernon Lee, who was a lesbian and feminist, who didn't go by their given name yeah. at all. Yeah. Like they totally just yeah. cast it off. And yeah. you have um, like George Sand, for example, who like that name was part of their identity in the same way that they played with gender and their identity yep. with the clothes that they yep. wore and how much they smoke and like yep. there's there's <laughs> there's this idea, right, always that like history is a lot more like binary and conservative than we think. Yes. Um and like truly the idea that um a lot of these writers simply picked names that weren't their given names because they couldn't get published as a woman first of all like is a slap in the face to the women who were publishing at that time and using their own names and second of all um is is overlooking and uncomplicating the reasons why they might want to be like why people want to be known as a pseudonym yeah um and a lot of these people wouldn't be known as women and kind of talked about in academic circles or in reader circles if they hadn't been like outed by other writers of their time yeah, Um, which is something that like they didn't want um, the so- point is like
1: it's an act of you know in this you know stripping them of their pseudonyms it's like their intentions you know maybe on their surface are um, you know they're noble they're trying to like give you know these women credit and stuff mm-hmm. but it just feels it's like happening by force, right? Like because the, these people have not agreed to this. Right. They picked and you know they made intentional choices about why they wrote under the way they did. They picked these names for themselves. They they did all of these things, and to just say, actually, the better thing to do would be to just publish them under their actual like their names that they you know that to me, I think actually you just said it best. That there's a certain flattening of history there. One, and there's a certain flattening of you know, the art and the what these people were trying to do and what makes these people interesting and you know and apart from even interesting, just who they are. Artistic you know what I mean?
0: choice like, extends yes, to absolutely. how something is published, not just the words of absolutely. the work. Absolutely,
1: absolutely. Like you're changing like you're changing something irrevocably on a level that really you should not be doing without the consent of the create and like you don't have that in this case. And so just I mean, I guess Maybe there's a version of this series or something that publishes these same 25 books and says, you know, these people, you know, they wrote under these names, but they were women, all these different, like, there's a version of this that doesn't rob them of agency, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? And I think, like, but, you know, there's something kind of catchy and markety about, like, wanting to publish a novel everyone's heard of, like, Middlemarch or something, and give it a different author name and have people, well, oh, why is that? And, like, do that, like... I get that but it's just that is so far beneath our list of like priorities and concerns Then, like <laughs> you know what I mean? especially I don't know it's like some of these things like what are you going to have tr- are we having trouble selling copies of Middlemarch right now I don't think we've pro- <laughs> I really don't think we are like it's
0: and it's also it's also like having an effect on Writers who are writing with pseudonyms now, and well, you know, so like I, yeah. I saw something from N.K. Jemison who yeah. decided to publish as N.K. Jemison instead of Nora Jemison because she was publishing academic work right. as Nora Jemison. Right. You know, and like that has nothing to do with any mistrust that your audience won't take you seriously right. because you're a woman. Right. And like and so and i saw i I saw a funny joke about um like man how incredible was it that um tolkien for example had to you know had to use initials to to write as a woman otherwise he wouldn't have been successful you know what i mean like right Right. (laughs) and 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 like there is there is levity to it but i but i want to move on to kind of the last element of kind why of are this we pulling for, all
1: these things together yeah. yeah
0: well so the last one is something just silly that yeah. we just saw on twitter but it kind of put all of these other things in perspective for us which is um journalist and author jess McHugh posted you know like a fun fun tweet that fun was fun in quotes fun in quotes um <laughs> top seven warning signs in a man's bookshelf and it lists things like a dog-eared copy of Infinite Jest, Too Much Hemingway. You already
1: know what's on this any list. Any amount You've of You've heard Bukowski, this joke a hundred times. Yeah.
0: Ayn Rand, Lolita is my favorite book. Um, and so that <laughs> that's really interesting, right? Because well, it's,
1: So it's, it's interesting in the sense that this keeps happening. That yeah. people, <laughs> <laughs> that like this, what I consider to be kind of a tired joke, like, oh, you know, Dude Bro is reading Hemingway and Infinite Jest. You know, like, let's, let's make that.
0: First of all, Infinite Jest is a tennis book. Let,
1: <laughs> let's we make support that.
0: tennis books at this podcast. Let's
1: make that crack again. You know, it's just it's sort of like very low-hanging, kind of well-trodden humor, first of all, which I think why a lot of people groan. But I do think it's actually doing something separate that I think all this stuff is kind of doing. And it relates to, like, the way we code art across a binary not even just, you know, throughout, you know, throughout history in the name of the in this, um, you know, like reclaim their name campaign or um, obviously we see, you know, that sort of impulse in the thinking of someone like uh, J.K. Rowling, who is very sort of, a, you know, a biological essentialist, you know, someone like that. Um, and it's like, you know, it kind of got you and I thinking about, OK, well, what like what is the resonance in here and. I think that this sort of this sort of dichotomy, boys' books, girls' books, um you know male, female, all these different stuff like it's the sort of thinking that, in a really kind of pernicious way, underpins so much of publishing and so many of the- editor- editorial choices we make, mm-hmm. so many I think specifically of the positioning and selling and acquiring choices we make like if you think of your favorite series right your favorite excuse me your favorite like genre category mm-hmm. apart from and I was going to say maybe even maybe even literary fiction is still kind of coded it's it's wrongly coded I think as male still a little bit even though that just doesn't line up at all with what's actually happening in the lid fix scene but like you know people look at when people think of YA quick is YA a, f- a female or a male you know it's coded, category. Female. It's coded female you know or romance Coded female, coded you know, email, like thrillers, these,
0: coded male, you, mysteries, coded male, unless history, they're cozy. History, history, coded, coded, male, coded you male. You know what I mean?
1: Like these things that you know, there's just this like gendered way of publishing, or you get into terms like dad books, or like you know, like stuff Ticklet. like women's fiction. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. all these different terms that very specifically are designed around defining its audience or its creators along a gendered line.
0: It was specifically, like, a binary line. Uh,
1: yeah, exactly. Like, it's really we were kind of we were kind of trying to unpack earlier today. Like, why like why is this happening? Like, and what like how can we kind of trace it through all this stuff? And like, for me, it got me thinking a lot about publishing's over reliance on precedent. Mm-hmm. You know, like, wh- you and I would both I think agree that this sort of very binary thinking is. Um outdated at best, um much worse things in it's very
0: the, a charitable way yeah to yes it. exactly <laughs>
1: like but it's 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 reliant on how things were discussed previously mm-hmm. and that's how publishing does everything, right, like w- the reason we use comp titles is because we, publishers want to know what the track is for a given book, like. What is the precedent for this? Like, How can we take what this new thing and put it through the same sales system, the same marketing campaign as something we've done before that we know works? Because we know that publishers, by and large, are fairly risk averse, are scared to try truly new things, are looking to take, even if something is ostensibly new, trying to figure out how they can run that through the same system they've been using forever.
0: And if this sounds really familiar, it's because it's the same logic that kept black creators from writing about people who look like them. Yeah. Um, yeah. it's and and I think um but like what I want to draw the connection to today is just like how publishing is kind of at odds with itself. There's it is like currently fundamentally in conflict between the work that is proving economically like smart and mm-hmm the the work that it wants and and is in conflict with the systems that it relies on, and I think the result of that conflict is this kind of like bad feminism, and I kind yeah. of wanna like yeah. so, so talk about that for a second. So, so publishing we just we just spoke about, but to reiterate, like it's really reliant on drawing gender lines, and you have that particularly in marketing and the and even like. The makeup of the people who work in specific genres, yes. right? Yes. Like, um, you know, there's like 80 percent women <laughs> in children's publishing yeah. to like 20 percent men, um, and it's in that way it's like upholding and kind of reliant on maintaining like very second wave feminism and ve- but also like a very patriarchal concept of gender. Which is why when we see super like the success of LGBTQ and I want to specifically talk about like trans creators and trans books, that disrupts the system and points out issues with it. So we have, you know, the reclaim her name campaign, which was fundamentally a- unable to create um, like... Uh, a a republishing package of work that honored women while also taking into account that many of these women if they were born today might not identify as yeah. as women yeah. or you know they might have right. played and expanded our definitions of what we thought that that meant yes. in the time that they lived. Right. We have um you know like we have the the pushback against the red flag books which also has a classist element, to be honest. Definitely but like does. But the 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 idea of red flag books, like what that's doing, is it's not just giving people in publishing a reason to continue coding things as girl books, boy books, and nothing in between. Um, but it's also pushing readers. To, to make those judgments from themselves. Yeah. There's this idea that, like, you, as a woman, you go into a man's bookshelf and you see these things and you go, oh, no, this man isn't going to see me as a person, as worthy of creating art. And there's a lot of, like... That
1: extrapolation you're expected, that, to, that, that tweet implies that you're going to make. Yeah. Correct. Right. So,
0: like, that particular, right. you know, that particular extrapolation, what it does is it causes the reader to put themselves in context, not of what they read, but of what they don't read. Yeah. And so then what you're doing is you're defining yourself in terms of like a different a type binary of like, other. a binary yeah. other. Yeah. And so, and then when you add, you know, the fact that this is a guy's shelf, not, you know, a girl's shelf or somebody who's genderqueer, their shelf, that way you're you're still coding it very much as male, right? Rather than just like somebody with shitty politics and shitty taste so (laughs) um and so like all of that kind of explains why there's why why things like slip through the cracks right like why this campaign got through why jk rowling was able to go so long before like feeling open enough to come out as a turf why At a literary agency that consisted of four people, one of them was hired on. And, like, this is an agency that says it's, like, very pro-LGBTQ. 25% of their staff (laughs) was a very, like, not-hiding-it, very, very, very open, like, trans misogynist.
1: That not-hiding-it part is what's catching my eye today. To be, like, just as a final little aside on that particular issue, like... You know, this person gets fired uh, for having an account online that, you know, spouts bigotry. Frankly, um, and they <laughs> they are not apologizing for this. They are on their they're doubling down. They're making appeals. They're gaining followers. They're doing what I sort of see as like that reaction. Right, like remember when that guy from Google got fired for like having that like document or whatever about you know women and stuff and like like. He like he like branded himself as having been like fired for truth, and like every every <laughs> like free speech warrior like got yeah. all over him, and like that's he, what's happening. He yeah. like had this whole profile raised because there is a certain playbook here that says if you can get fired in this way, you can sort. Of, we just saw Barry Weiss do it at the at the New yeah. York Times. Like if you can, not that she got fired, but if you can dramatically leave a place by saying that they weren't open to your you know too enlightened views, which are actually just. Bullshit. You know, bull- <laughs> like, there is a there is an audience for that, and we're seeing that this person's gaining followers. They haven't apologized. Sasha they're White not, has
0: five thousand more followers po- today than she had yesterday. They're not
1: posting any less, and that that is something we need to look at very carefully. Which is that these people have support systems. Like, obviously, J.K. Rowling is someone with billions of dollars and does not necessarily need that same sort of support. But like, she's got a lot of sympathetic people yeah. listening to her. Like. There are people ready to stick up for her in all this stuff. And this is true of anyone who kind of makes this play, you know. And I just think we got to watch it, man. I think, like, (laughs) it's, like, there are certain forms of, there are certain forms of bigotry that, at the very least, when exposed or outed, the person who does them apologizes for right like if we find if someone is credibly accused of racism or whatever it is and it's like the proof is there we see it you know even if they haven't really changed at all you're probably going to get a surface level apology Mm -hmm. right like because they understand that that's where the culture is you can't just do so like there is that bare minimum requirement even to someone who believes terrible things I don't think that's true on some of this gender stuff right now you know what I mean like people do not feel the need to be accountable to anyone on this stuff, and that's really like I think that reflects very poorly on publishing. Yeah. Um, and I. Yeah.
0: And I want to like, and I want to point out when we say reflects really poorly, I mean kind of like structurally and how people kind of are complicit in that. So like, yeah. to be clear, like Lane, who I consider to be a friend of mine, at who is the president of the yeah. Tobias Literary Agency? Yeah. Who hired Sasha White? Immediately fired. Yeah, her, oh, right so when so finding this and like, and he like represents a lot of wonderful authors yeah. on the like yeah. that are that are LGBTQ. But there is something to look at in like how publishing and how agenting and how editorial um systems are set up that somebody who has such vehement beliefs that are running antithetical to the company that they work for like was still willing to work at a place like that and still was able to get yeah, hired and right. like and I think the answer is not necessarily that like the people at Tobias didn't do their due diligence I think the answer is bigger I think the answer yes. is pointing to that like individuals individual writers individual agents individual editors can do as much as they can to create those exceptions right the super queer yeah. books yeah. to support yeah. and uplift trans authors the the projects that a few years ago somebody would be like no we we don't we don't want that we don't know how to break it out we don't know how to sell it and i think that that's only going to get us so far until like fundamentally like publishing as a system is able to look at how their structures are in opposition to what they're saying that they want. Yeah. Like, and we talk about this a lot with race, particularly. Right. Like, the structures of, like, the physical structures of New York make it really impossible to have a diverse workforce in publishing. and And I think that these are, like, truly what we're talking about here, like, these are more... Ideological structures. Like, how how do we want to put covers on books? Who do we want to ask to do blurbs? How?
1: And who is all of that marketing for?
0: Who is the marketing for? Like, a book cover. Where are we having people, like, shelve the books? Yes,
1: yes. Because, like, covers and blurbs and stuff, you know, they're nice editorial choices. But really what they are is they're selling tools, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you're trying to broadcast a certain thing to a certain potential reader. And so... When that stuff gets coded a certain way, when, you know, quote-unquote girl book covers get, you know, presented with certain colors or certain images and, you know, like you're trying to signal something to someone. Yeah. And we just got to look at this stuff because it's going to only continue to kind of reinforce a, a binary that is hurting people and is also, I think, hurting the industry. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, I think, like, it's just... Like, apart from being totally like abhorrent on an ideological level it's also just bad business (laughs) because it just suggests you don't know who your readers are you don't know who you're you don't know who's writing the books you don't know who's reading the books you don't know what they're looking for you don't know what they're trying to get across like it's just you know what it is it's and this is maybe how i felt too about that kind of honestly silly and throwaway and not worth this level of discussion tweet you know like it's just incurious you know what i mean like it's such a narrow vision of how people are what people are and oftentimes in pointing it out like like in the, those terms you reflect more on yourself than you do that's the same with the reclaim and, her right name exactly
0: thing it's you know and it also like if we can talk about this from a branding level for a second yeah. all of the print versions of those books together laid out spell reclaim her name as like in each each part has each spine has a part of the letters on that and it's like there's something really interesting about taking away these people's chosen names and then putting them all as part of one thing together
1: yeah (laughs) it's strange yeah
0: and like i know that that was you know that's like a branding choice but like also it's an ideological choice right right and i think and i think that's something that That I just, like, want people to be aware of and call attention to. Like, when, fundamentally, when the conflict is in between the system and, like, modern and progressive viewpoints and readers and trying to attract new things, like, when those two things stay in conflict and that that system is not addressed... Uh Then we're going to end up with, like, what I'm just looking at is, like, bad feminism. Like, TERFs are bad feminists. You have the, you know, we keep thinking of it as the orange prize. It's not the orange prize. But, like, that, that prize, which is meant, like, for women and comes with a nice big chunk of change, like, that prize ends up being regressive. It ends up being, like, reinforcing the patriarchal systems that, like feminism is fundamentally fighting against and it's alienating like (laughs) real women yeah um it's alienating queer women it's it's alienating um it's alienating trans women like it is a mess um and like truly you know i think the way to start with all of this is like give your readers credit i guess is the way to do it like stop pitting them stop pitting yeah. certain books against other books let them you know like we have like entering the entering the workforce entering kind of in this great like economic force we have this generation z which speak about gender and identity with such complex terminology and it's yeah. so exact and it's yeah. so like yeah. it's so <laughs> honestly like awe-inspiring yeah. right and like you have these people and you need to sell them books. Mm-hmm. You need to give them books. And so, like, give them credit. Like, give your science fiction readers credit that they actually, like, don't necessarily need to have, like, boy science fiction books and girl science fiction books. Right. You know, right. like, give your, like, explore what it would mean to have romance readers who aren't women like, and yeah. how to market to those people. Yes. You know? And, like... And I don't have all the answers here. Um, Well,
1: it's also I think one the one last thing maybe is when it comes to setting trends and stuff. We have talked before about publishing often Mm -hmm. abdicating its responsibility to set Mm -hmm. those trends or to change the way people think. Like too often the the rationale for things is well we don't think the readers are there yet, and it's like no no you can tell the readers where to be by doing good publishing, (laughs) and I think to some extent to some extent the same is true here with regard to like affecting an ideological conversation you know being a part of a cultural movement you know publishing can either help or hinder that and it really doesn't have a choice between the two like it's either going to be a force that um you know helps you know improve people's lives and you know allows for greater representation and allows for a cultural move toward empathy of people of all you know gender identities and things like that um, or it's going to be revanchist and it's going to be something that only enforces a binary and it has to pick. You know what I mean? Like there's either helping yeah. that or hurting that. And there's no, well, the readers want X, Y, or Z. There's, well, what are you doing to show the readers where to be? So, I mean, I think like that's, that's mostly it for today, right? I mean, I think it's just we have to, we have to, like we say every week, we've got to interrogate these structures, right? Like we have to look at... Not wh- just
0: what we're doing, yeah. but in what structure and yes. what context are we doing it. Yes.
1: And this is one of those things, and there were enough things these last few weeks that kind of fit this same pattern or reflected one single pattern. And it's just important to it's important to look at it, I think. So
0: all right. Well, thank you so much for joining us on this, our first in person be masked and be basemented episode of print run <laughs> of basically all of spring, all of summer, and getting into fall. Um, We're so excited to be back. If you have questions, if you have queries or first pages you want us to critique, um, if you have suggestions for things you want us to cover, send them to us. We're at printrunpodcast at gmail.com. And we will see you for our special episodes and hopefully a regular episode next week.
1: Bye.